Sean asked me to talk about my experience with evidence-based policy, and uh, I could bore for Britain on that, and probably will. Um, but I thought I'd really focus on the, the role that you do, and our, our training to do, and have been trained to do, in, in, in how we can use academic research uh, in policy, because it's, it's a varied field, and I don't think we... Uh, we always appreciate just the opportunities we have to use uh, academic research. Um, I also want to talk about some of the resistance to using our work uh, in policy, not just in Britain, across the world. It's not the first place that people go for evidence, um, sadly, and I think we need to think about that. Um, and then say a little bit about how we might overcome that resistance. Okay? So for me, evidence-based policy is not, it's not difficult uh, as a concept. It's about trying to help people make better decisions. People can be ministers, they can be senior civil servants, they can be people who are running public services, uh, they can be international development practitioners with whom I'm doing a lot of work at the moment through 3IE, um, to make better decisions and achieve better outcomes. And that's really very important. It's trying to achieve better outcomes and move people away from just improving processes, which is what governments are quite good at doing. Well, they spend a lot of time doing it. I can't say they're good at it. But they spend a lot of time working on processes uh, and often measure outputs when they should be measuring outcomes. So often the civil service, we're very proud of the fact that we hire an extra thousand doctors and take our eye off the ball of whether it's making any difference to the health status of the country. Okay. Um, so it should also allow us to make better policy and also better, better public services and private services. Evidence-based policy is not the domain of public sector at all. Many of the private sector services could work a lot better if they use evidence more effectively. Uh, dare I mention the banks and the banking system would be a very good example. If they kept their eye on the evidence about uh, what they were doing and the consequences of their actions and the risks they were taking with a very poor risk analysis, we might not have been in some of the mess we are now. So basically, it's using evidence to make better decisions, and that's using existing evidence more effectively, uh, and that's largely where the systematic reviews movement research synthesis comes in, and at 3IE, we, we fund a lot of systematic reviews. We just <laughs> led another dozen contracts, and we'll be doing more soon. Um, and that's basically to, first of all, identify what evidence we have and haven't got, and then try and get people to use it effectively. I'll say more about that later. But that often identifies that we have gaps in the literature, gaps in our knowledge. Uh, or, going back to the conversation earlier about generalizability, we need to know what is, what is it that is contextually specific and what is truly generalizable. And the conditional cash transfers is a very good example of that. Uh, so I was, in, I was in South Africa recently, I'm doing quite a lot of work there at the moment, and uh, I was working with the World Bank, and the World Bank will tell people in South Africa that they've got to use conditional <laughs> cash transfers because they've been shown to work in Latin America. Just think of that from a totally illogical argument. South Africa is not Latin America, okay? And there are a lot of contextual features about South Africa or the whole of Africa that are not repli replicable from what has been achieved and not achieved in Latin America. And we know that there have been failures with conditional cash transfers in Latin America as well as successes of Progressa and all the other countries that have tried that. So we, if we can find those gaps in our evidence base, then that's where perhaps we should be either replicating studies in different environments or doing primary studies to fill the gap. But uh, to me, evidence-based policy isn't just about doing our work better. 
I think we do very well. We produce some rather, some very good work. We also produce some very modest work as well. But we, we tr you know, through systematic reviews, we are usually able to identify the strongest evidence. But the crucial thing is to try and integrate uh, our knowledge with what, uh, with the other factors that influence policy making. And this is this is probably the lone voice that you heard ten years ago because. Uh, people say to me, look, your, your evidence is all very interesting, but it's not very, it's not what drives policy, okay? And they're quite right. What drives policy, if you think of it, is basically values, beliefs, uh, uh, ideologies, commitments, theoretical positions, okay? And indeed the decision-making context, whether you're working in a totalitarian society or a democratic society, where you, whether you're at the beginning of a policy cycle or, or political cycle, and they're not the same, or the end, whether you're in crisis mode, like when the banks suddenly cease to work on the 7th of October 2008, uh, you're in a very different position to when you're not in crisis mode. So we've got to try and achieve this first interface between evidence and people's values, and it goes both ways. Can we test values, beliefs, and ideology with evidence? Can we refine, does the evidence actually... Do we need to think about uh, whether our evidence is strong enough to have an impact on, on those ideas? Uh, secondly, we have to integrate evidence with the um, very important factors, the experience and the expertise of policymakers. If you work uh, in a government department, uh, and many civil servants are there for many years, they acquire experience and expertise of an issue which... Um, in some senses, surpasses academic knowledge. It certainly complements to it. It is another dimension. Uh, and if you ignore that, if you ignore, for instance, the institutional memory, which we're very good at not doing in government, governments, as they pass through the parliamentary cycles, just forget what they've done in the last five years. I was just saying, I've been invited back to the Cabinet Office. This is really ironic. Because they want to think about how we can reform the civil service so they use evidence more effectively which is precisely why I went into government on loan from Oxford in 2000. It's exactly what I was went in to do. Went for three years and stayed for seven. I thought we'd done that bit. But they're not going to do it again because they seem to have forgotten what happened in the last seven to ten years. Um, judgment is important in a number of ways. If you're making policy decisions, it's a lot about judging uh, a whole array of factors. And that includes, of course, judging evidence. Evidence doesn't tell you what to do. I, I can't think of any situation where it tells you what to do. Evidence just presents you with the evidence, okay? It has to be interpreted. It has to be, you have to interpret it in light of what you're bringing to it in terms of your values, your experience. And those judgments are important. Uh, and if you ignore those judgments, you are not going to, you're not going to really get a way uh, to, to actualize uh, evidence. Resources are important. Evidence-based policy is not about doing what works. It's a rather naive view of it. In fact, what works is not the issue. It's what works at what cost to achieve what outcomes for what groups of people over what time. Now, that's the evidence-based challenge. If you can answer those five questions, you're beginning to get uh, a more uh, realistic <coughs> approach to evidence-based policy. So coming along telling people what works is interesting, but actually very uninteresting if you don't know anything about the costs of it the cost-benefit and the cost-effectiveness of different options, and if you don't know for whom it works and whom it doesn't work. So just whether a pro program works um, 
it doesn't work unless it has those dimensions. And indeed, over what time? Go back to the conditional cash transfers argument. It doesn't surprise me that conditional cash transfers reduces people's cash poverty. It's almost a tautology. If you give people money, you reduce their, their cash poverty. It doesn't surprise me that in many areas it gets them to go to school or to go be immunised. What doesn't surprise me also is if you look at longer-term outcomes, they're not always very effective. Okay? And intermediate and longer-term outcomes are exactly what we should be measuring before we conclude that a particular policy works or doesn't work. Bureaucratic culture, if you've worked in government, it is by definition a bureaucratic culture. Just read Max Weber. He was, <laughs> Max Weber could, could almost write, uh, almost wrote what happens in most civil services, plural. Uh, uh, extraordinary writing given when it was written and how it was written. And, and that means that there is resistance often just to change, just, just to engaging with any of the above, is that uh, people in government often do things because they've always done it that way. I remember asking why we brief ministers in the most bizarre way. We put these briefings up to ministers, which actually don't say anything. They, 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 to me, they didn't say. I couldn't understand what, what they were telling the minister. And I, I said, why do, we, why do we put this briefing up to ministers in this way? And the answer was, well, we've always done it that way. Have you got a better idea? And we did. We said what we should be doing in briefings is separating out the element that is the, the values. So you put up, this is what you said you're going to do in your manifesto. That's the first element. The second is, this is what the evidence suggests. And the third issue is, this is your judgment, okay? And there are three completely different levels of analysis. Uh, and at DTI, the Department of Tra uh, Trade and Industry, now, now Department of Business, I don't know if they're still using it, but they certainly trialled it and they claimed it was a much more informative way to help ministers to separate out what they believed in, what the evidence suggests, and what required their judgment. Um, but, you know, I can't believe that's been universally adapted because civil services world over take a long time to adjust. Fifthly, one, two, three, four, sixthly, we're not the only kids on the block. Uh, in fact, we're the least kids on the block when we're making evidence. Uh, we, the academic community. We're, we are, uh, I'll show you later, there's a whole bunch of places that uh, civil servants go to for evidence before they go to academic uh, research. And lobbyists and pressure groups are one of them. And they are, and this, again, this is not just a British phenomenon, wherever, I've worked, wherever I work, I find the power of lobbyists and pressure groups, is not to, pressure groups is not to be underestimated. In fact, they're very good at what they do. They're better at getting a message over to a policymaker than a lot of us in academia. Um, so maybe we should be thinking about becoming something of a lobbyist ourselves. We could lobby evidence. Uh, and I mean the totality, the balance of evidence. It's not that lobbyists and pressure groups don't use evidence. It's that they use evidence selectively. In fact, they, if they're doing their job well, that's exactly what they should be doing. You should be selecting, selectively using evidence to make a case. Okay? Our job, I think, is to try and get that balance of evidence, the pros and cons, the effectiveness, the ineffectiveness, the intended and unintended consequences. And lastly, and there are many other factors, but we could be here till Christmas if we go on doing this, uh, are, are simply pragmatics and contingencies, things that crop up. Uh, things like, you know, the weather, which is actually ceasing to be a contingency. It's almost like a, you know, we've had three successive years of, 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 of rainfall that is quite excessive. Uh, and uh, across the world, just think of the floods we've had, the earthquakes, the tsunamis. These things just come. They just happen. 
people fly planes into buildings in New York. You know, where the heck did that come from? That whole idea that it, it totally scotches all the planned approaches to policy. You have to respond often very quickly to these major international events and disasters. I call that the pragmatics of government. And a lot of government is just responding. It's, it, you can, you know, every government has its five-year plan. It's very, very rare that they keep to it for more than about six months. It's not because they've got attention deficit disorder. It's quite simply that these pragmatics and contingencies, contingencies keep coming along. Uh, that, and I'll just say later, something about optimism bias, um, which isn't just an economic concept, it's a political concept, is, is we are far too optimistic about what can be achieved by policy and what can be achieved by the actions of uh, politicians and civil servants. So the point of this is simply to say evidence to me is crucial. And as you see, I've got it central. I think when I was working the civil service, they'd have it over here somewhere, so it might come in peripherally. To me, it's got to be in the middle, okay? That's why I was a lone voice. Uh, not such a lone voice. There, there were fellow travellers, particularly in Treasury, surprisingly. But what I'm trying to show is it's, the, it's these interactions that matter. And that to me is a challenge. If we can get evidence to interact with these things, uh, and I'll show you a systematic review later by John Lavis, which suggests that that is one of the most effective ways to get evidence into policy, is to work through these conjoining circles here. Okay, what, what do we need evidence of? First of all, uh, the theory of change. Um, absolutely crucial. What is a policy supposed to do? How is it supposed to work? Okay. Now, this is, this is not just an academic concept. We should be thinking about that when we're evaluating policies. What I tried to do when I was in government is to build that into the policy-making cycle. To get, because, because policy is often driven by ideas and ideology and beliefs, they're often not thought through. Okay? So the job of the civil servant is to take those ideas and try and make them operational. Try and see, how is this policy supposed to work? How do we get from the inputs to the outputs to the outcomes? What activities, what mechanisms, what people, what resources have got to be in place? Can we, can we build a causal chain? Now, of course, we need that for evaluation purposes. You cannot evaluate a program if you haven't got a theory of change. But I'm saying you need that for policy purposes as well. You need to really build that into the process. And, and, and that is about an interchange between ideas and evidence. What have other countries done? What has been done elsewhere? What has been successful? What hasn't? Which goes to the, sorry, goes to the third one first. What is already known about a policy issue? Okay? Because policy issues are never brand new. There's always a policy challenge that has been addressed somewhere in a, it's somewhere at a different time, and, and there have been responses to that. That's something we get from the systematic reviews movement. Not just We don't just do systematic reviews to look about what is effective and not effective, which is important, but just what has been tried. What are policy options? What is the lay of the land? What, has been done, what, are, the, what are the policy scenarios that we might learn from? Going back to this point here, we also need evidence about the nature of the problem the size of the problem and the dynamics of it. What's driving it? Okay? And this we can address by using both quantitative and qualitative evidence. We can use administrative data. We can use survey data. We can use census data. Uh, and the, 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 the interesting thing about in government is that government sits on this data. It often owns it. Uh, we, when I was in government, we were responsible for over 1,500 surveys that government pays for and 
through ONS, uh, Office of National Statistics, holds. But I think we use one, less than one percent, I don't know. I doubt whether we use much more than two or three percent of that, okay, in the daily work of government. And, and just using what we already know to address those questions. How, what is the problem? What is its nature? And that goes back to the theory of change. So these two inter interchange all the time. How do you refine the theory in terms of, is it, is it a, it, does it affect a few people? Is it a few million? And what's driving it? What are the dynamics behind that? And often we can do that by the interchange between theorizing and using statistical and qualitative data. And that tells us what we need to know about a policy issue. That tells us where our gaps are. Something we, we, we have developed at 3IE in the London office that I manage, and we're requiring now of a lot of our work internationally, is, to help, is, to, is that people develop gap maps. We've just completed a gap map on HIV AIDS. We've done one on maternal and child health. We've done one on a major one on agriculture. We've got two coming up on climate change which is where we simply identify on a grid. We take our theory of change, so the horizontal axis is what activities, mechanisms, people, processes, outputs and outcomes, and on the vertical axis is what are the policy interventions, and then you, you've got a grid. And, and when you do a systematic review, and if it's done properly, you can then start populating the grid. The point being, you usually end up, land up with a lot of vacant places. There's lots of areas we just don't know anything about. This is the Donald Rumsfeld principle. You don't know what you know until you know what you don't know. I think that's what he said. He made a hash of it, but I think that's what he said. <laughs> and that is important. Through gap maps, we can actually start to say, we know a lot of this stuff, but we don't know this stuff here. And I'd be happy to share with you some of our gap maps, because I'm interested in the gaps as much as I am with what we know. Also, on our gap maps, we quality appraise them by colour, so green is, this is high quality evidence. Uh, I guess it must be amber, it looks more like yellow would be, this is moderately good quality evidence. And this is red, this is, we have evidence, but it's pretty poor quality. And guess what? There's as much red uh, as there is, uh, in fact, probably more red. There's as much red as there is amber and green. A lot of the evidence we have is not of a high quality. So we need to think about how we refine that uh, either by replication or doing new studies. Then we come on to the what works question, the likely impact of the policy or the demonstrated impact. For this, we need experimental designs, we need quasi-experimental designs, specifically randomised controlled trials, regression discontinuity designs, propensity score matching, instrumental variable analysis, difference of differences, that's pretty much that'll do for the time being. <laughs> If you and use those judiciously uh, and not uh, claiming, as the randomisters do, that randomized control trial is the only way to demonstrate effect, it's not. Okay? If you know how to use these instruments best, you often would much, be much better off doing a good propensity score match than a bad randomized control trial, where randomization A is inappropriate and B would be difficult to do. But where we can use randomization we argue, and, and use it effectively at the individual cluster level, then we've got a powerful instrument to show the impact. Then, for whom do we work? Uh, do, do our policies work? I'm, you know that when we do impact evaluations, we tend to look at the average treatment, of, average, average treatment effect, the ATE. To me, that's relatively uninteresting. Um, I mean, you need, it's nice to know it. 
But to me, it's, it's the heterogeneity, it's the diversity, it's the variance that matters. I'm much more interested for whom it works. And I think the analysis of the variance, the analysis of the diversity of effects, for policy purposes, is often much, much more important. Which, again, is one of the... I came in on this discussion, one of the problems with conditional cash transfers. We often look at the average effect, <coughs> when actually it's the diversity effect. Is it the poor, the very poor, or the extreme poor it's having an effect on? Or the other way around, is it the moderately, the rich, or the very rich? And I think it's those, to me, for policy purposes, that's really what we should be having much great, much more finer analysis. Then, in government, there's a lot of evidence. How do you make a policy work? What is the evidence of implementation? And again, this is what civil servants most want to know. Uh, my colleagues were always saying, yeah, 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 we know this work. We know this worked in Mexico or Brazil or New York or wherever. How will it work in Britain? Or as we used to say, will it work in Gateshead? Okay. Or Grimsby. There's always a G. Grimsby or Gate. If it won't work in Grimsby or Gateshead, we're not interested. So then you have to take something. I'll show you an example later with the ERA work. We knew it worked. Every time it had been used in America and Canada, the ERA approach had got positive effects. But the range of effects were from 1% in Minnesota to 26% over the counterfactual in Riverside, California. Where were we going to be? Because to the Treasury at the time, anything less than 4 or 5% is just too, too low a minimal detectable effect. We're not interested in it. So if we're, if we're going to get 1%, we're just not interested in it at all. We've got to get somewhere between 25 to 4% before Treasury would even be interested. Okay. So what would need to be in place to get those magnificent, and by the way, the extreme was Riverside, California, was an outlier. The average from all the RCTs done in the US on this was about 6.5%, 7%, which would be acceptable. But how did they attain that? What had to be in place? Which goes back the theory of change. If you can't identify in the theory of change where you are, you're not going to be able to really have an effective implementation analysis. And then the costs and benefits of a policy. To people in government anywhere in the world, an, uh, uh, um, um, an impact evaluation without costs is pretty much useless. Now, the question is whether we build cost-benefit analysis into our impact evaluations or whether we do them ex post once we've got the evaluation. And that's a whole argument for another day. There is an argument for both cases. And increasingly, when you'll see from the ERA project and the EMA project I'm going to show you in a minute, they were built into the impact evaluation. That's what we were doing. It's effectively a glorious cost-benefit analysis built around, I'll have to use that, not this, built around a pretty well-designed uh, randomised controlled trial, or in the case of the EMA, um, a uh, propensity score matching experiment. And lastly, for today anyway, uh, the ethics of a policy. And I'm not talking about the ethics of research. That is an issue. Uh, but the ethics of policy is important. In social policy, particularly social policy, but in all policy, we are nearly always trading off one group of citizens against the other. The rich or the poor, the young or the old, the urban, the rural, north-south, black-white. There's always some sort of yeah, trade-off. There's some... Some people are going to benefit and some people are going to be dis have a disbenefit because of our policies. Now, to me, and I've learned this from our colleague uh, Tony Hope here in Oxford who does this in medical work, 
these are not just technocratic issues. These are actually about social ethics. These are about how, this is about the model of the actor that we have. Um, in other words, it reveals, Tony would say, we reveal our preferences for the elderly or the very young, for the North or the South, the black, the white, the rich, the poor. And you see it all the time in politics, but it's important in social policy. What are our implicit values that we privilege one group over the other? And it really does affect how you analyse your data. And uh, Tony has some very interesting ways of analysing that. And uh, I'm pleased to hear for him he's retiring. I'm very sad for Oxford he's retiring. But please, if you're interested in this, read anything by, some of you will know Tony Hope, his excellent work on social ethics and on medical ethics. is about how do you build an ethical analysis into these decision-making uh, structures uh, of, of, of policy. So I put that up there because I want to show evidence-based policy isn't about what works. It is a very small, a very significant element, but it's only one of the questions we need evidence for in government. And I guess I went in naively thinking they wanted to know about this, and they don't. They want to know about all of this, which is why, by the way, it's a wonderful place to work if you're interested in social policy. Um, I wouldn't go into academia, I'd go into government. I really don't. That's a piece of advice. Probably earn more as well. Um, it's just a, if you like doing this stuff, it's just a wonderful place to work. By the way, don't all rush because they're still laying off social researchers in government. But the, it'll turn around. They'll start hiring. <laughs> By the time you've graduated and done a few things, they'll be, they'll be rehiring. Okay, so that's. Uh, let's push on now. Um, how is evidence supposed to work in policymaking? Some of you, perhaps those of a slightly older generation, will know about Carol Weiss's work. From now, 30 years ago, this was the new study, just a few, seems like a few years ago. I could have sworn this was done five years, ten years ago. 30 years ago, Carol wrote this work. And what she pointed out in this very important paper, to me, is there are at least three ways in which policy uh, uh, is influenced by evidence informs policy. One is the one we often naively assume is the case, that it's an instrumental relationship that we get, we get research and we put it into policy. The policymakers, they, they think, oh, let's go and see what the research says and we'll put it into policy. Carol's point 30 years ago, and I would say it with knobs on now, it's not the way it works, okay? There are cases where it works, and I'm going to give you, one in a, give you an example in a minute, but it's very rare where people are in Whitehall or in the, uh, on the Hill in the United States or in Pretoria in South Africa, they're hanging around waiting for our next paper or our next systematic review and say, well, we won't do the policy until we've heard what Phil's got to say in his systematic review. It doesn't work that way, and thank goodness it doesn't. Um, uh, there are instances, as I should show you in a minute, more typically, uh, Carol Weiss would say, is a more conceptual use. She uses this term, it's a percolation effect, is that evidence over time sort of filters down, if you remember what percolation coffee was like, it boils up and then sort of percolates down. It's, that's her imagery. That it can take 10 years for a concept that we know in, in social policy to have very good evidence, for it to percolate its effects into the consciousness and the actions of policymakers. I'm just thinking of some of the work that's being done now on social mobility in Whitehall. It was built on some of the work done in this very, very, this very building uh, when I was a graduate student near 35 years ago. It's taken that long for some of that stuff from Tony Heath and um, 
uh, and Goldthorpe and Lockwood, Lockwood wasn't from here of course, to actually, it's now part of the language of, they talk about social mobility, they talk about origins and destinations, okay? It's part of the language of government, but it's taken 20 or 30 years to get there. Uh, and that's before they look at the data, okay? So there is this gradual percolation effect, which Carol says, and I think she's right, is perhaps more how it works. So don't get depressed, your work will have an impression, but it may take a bit of a time to do it. David Eddy, a colleague of ours, um, uh, I see Francis here, Francis probably knows David's work. David Eddy reckons that it takes 17 years for the evidence from a randomised controlled trial in medicine to become uh, received um, practice in, in, in actual medical practice with patients. 17 years on average, because at the time it had, particularly with drug trials, but it even in non-drug interventions, before it gets into the received wisdoms, the values, the beliefs about what works, before it gets accepted by the bureaucratic culture of the Royal Colleges <coughs> in this country and the Royal College of Nursing, what have you, and actually gets down to the patient can take a long time. So there might be something in this notion of a longer-term percolation effect. More typically, says Carol, somewhat cynically, is um, evidence is often used to justify what the government's going to do anyway. And that's what we call, or I call, policy-based evidence, not evidence-based policy. And that's, that's very usual in government. I can't tell you the number of times when I worked in the strategy unit, um, when number 10 would come to us and say, the Prime Minister's giving a speech this afternoon saying this, can you find the evidence to substantiate it? Okay? And that's nothing, that's nothing against Tony Blair, that's how government works. Okay? Go, we're going to do this, go and find the evidence. Um, not what I think is the best use of evidence, but that's uh, what Carol calls the symbolic use. Now, a couple of examples, and then I'll probably just hush up. The educational maintenance allowance, which I'm sure is familiar to most of you because you're social policy students, as you know, educational maintenance allowances is not new. It's a, it's a classic conditional cash transfer, uh, which has been shown to be effective in terms of doing a whole range of things in education. Department of Education in 1998-2000 was really interested in how can we get youngsters at 16 years of age to stay on at school for an extra two years. I think at that time the dropout rate, the, sorry, the continuation rate was about 45%. The government wanted to get it up to 65%. How do you do it? The answer is from all the systematic reviews of evidence, all the policy files, the policy documents, is pay them. Pay them a sum. The question is, how much do you pay them, and do you pay them or do you pay their parent, usually their mum, okay? And that shows you about the generalizability issue, because if you do this in many African countries, they wouldn't even pose the question, you pay the mum, okay? The culture is that mother is the purse holder for the house. The very first thing they showed with the EMA allowance is that will not work in Britain. If you don't pay the kid, the kid will not stay on at school, okay? That was a very easy finding. But the question then was, how much do you pay them? And, uh, the, the levels that they were testing was you paid them £30 or £40 a week. Now, these were derived from doing labour market analysis. And it was some faction, uh, Robinson, Rob Walker, I think, was involved in this. What, 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 what fraction of the then uh, daily, uh, sorry, weekly wage, uh, average wage would you pay, have to pay them? And I remember it being £30 and £40, then whether to pay the kid or their mother. And second... Because, again, the evidence we have from CCTs in most countries is it's also good to have this incentive allowance. It's a carrot. If you stay in for one year, you get a bonus. If you stay in for two years, you get another bonus, okay? It's the carrot. So this is the stick, and that's the carrot. 
question is, should it be, I can't remember now, uh, should it be £50 or £80, and at the end, should it be £50 or £140? Again, these were not just pulled out of the sky. These were done by uh, cost-benefit analysis done by labour market economists. So, and to make life even more complicated, they wanted to know what would it be for, would it, would it be differential for men and women, boys and girls, what are they, 16, male and female young people, and would you have a differential rate for urban and rural environments? So you've got a lot of variables going on here. And that's what the EMA evaluation studied, evaluated, took two and a half years to do. It was done by the Institute of Education slash Institute of Fiscal Studies, Lorraine did was really working in both, still is working both at the time. And they decided to use propensity score matching. We would have liked to have used a random allocation procedure, but for all sorts of reasons, which I can't go into, they couldn't. Also, I know that Lorraine was itching to test whether we could use propensity score matching in a British context, because it was then pretty, a relatively new approach to evaluation. Um, so that's what it's trying to do. And its results actually were very encouraging. Uh, although this, this paper by Lorraine is in 2008, the findings were known in real time from about 2001 to onwards. She's, it's, it's a paper that overviews the whole findings. There was a substantial impact for the cash transfers. Okay? In the first year, it was 4.5% increase over the comparison group. This is not a control group because it's in a propensity score matching. It's a comparison group. And in the second year, it rose to 6.7%. And in fact, the average that it came out at just about 6.5%. <coughs> .6 which, as I say, is, is above that threshold of 25 to 4% the Treasury least as a minimum detectable effect to really start investing in it. So this, this, this was actually a very positive finding. And by the way, just to mark your card, if you talk to politicians, they were disappointed by this. Politicians, this is the optimism bias of politicians. They believe you're going to get a 20% increase in effect size, double this. Or you don't get those effect sizes with most interventions. You, you know, in policy terms, if you're getting somewhere about 4.5% to 6%, you should be jumping up and down. Okay? Uh, and that's an important issue to, re to, to think about what is, what, what is politically acceptable and what is actually from a scientific purpose. This was really very encouraging. Um, Chowdhury and Emerson, who work at the Institute of Fiscal Studies, concluded that the costs of providing the EMA were likely to exceed, to be exceeding along by the higher wages in the future. In fact, it's a much more complex paper than this. I'm just picking out the headline findings. The point was, the findings of this were, uh, allowed the department to actually set the initial rate at £30. You didn't have to pay £40, but to go for the higher rates in the bonus, okay? Very clear, and it was for men and women, boys and girls, urban and rural areas. Very clear policy message, and it became the basis upon which the EMA was funded, okay? They were the rates that we used. So to me, that's a rare example of where there's an instrumental use of research. And to be, give credit to the Department for Education and to Treasury, they waited for the results before they deployed it. That's very unusual. Now, that is evidence-based policy with knobs on, okay? But it doesn't happen very often. New government in 2010, you probably know that within about two weeks of coming in, they scrapped the EMA. Uh, huge outcry. Why are you doing this? Because it's a, it's a manifesto commitment. We want to go for better targeting. It's not getting the right people. People shouted, what's your evidence? 
The evidence was a single survey of people who had used the EMA, EMA who had stayed on at school. A, quite a good survey, got a good sample size as well, 1,500 if I remember correctly. There's nothing wrong with the survey, but one question on this survey was to the people who had gone through EMA, EMA, would you have stayed on at school if you hadn't had the EMA? Which, of course, is a retrospective hypothetical question, which has all sorts of internal validity issues. And 88% of them said, yeah, I would have done. So which George Osborne said, ha-ha, we have a deadweight problem. We have a deadweight problem of 88%. We are now in the austerity narrative, the deficit reduction narrative. We've got to get rid of this policy. 88% deadweight is unacceptable. I mean, if that were true, it might be acceptable. But it's a very simplistic way to look at a deadweight analysis, and I can't believe they got away with it. Well, they did, because the Institute of Fiscal Studies started jumping up and down. And Chowdhury and Emerson, who know these data better than anyone, again, this is a paper worth reading, and maybe you all know it, but said, look, even if you take into account that level of deadweight, the EMA benefits still outweighed the costs. Okay, include the deadweight costs, because they said, if we look at, this is where we use the qualitative data, we know now that kids, for instance, weren't having to take part-time jobs. They were able to spend more time on their studies. That goes when you have the new, when, when, when the EMA goes. So to me, this was almost like an example of a symbolic use of evidence. They were not, they, they, they were not going to use the EMA. They looked for some evidence to prove their point, and they found it. The outcry was so great, they've actually reintroduced the EMA in a very, it's not the EMA anymore, they've, 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 they've now got a very different version of it, at, uh, a very scaled down version of it, with probably some of you here know more about it than I do, at much lower rates, but, but, but a, 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 a sort of conditional cash transfer for uh, school stay, stayers on has is, is been brought back in. They're the ones, because they rolled it out, they rolled it out in some areas and not others, so they just did matched, matched areas. It was the adjacent area, but not the adjacent district, so they had a, they, so there wasn't going to be any spillover, okay, or contamination. So that was the point. They rolled it out only in some areas, but not others. Okay, the ERA was around, this is the, and I wish Rob, Rob's not still here, Rob was very, very central to this, um, uh, gave us a lot of, lot of insight from his experience then at Nottingham, and of course down here. This was a project, this is the Employment Retention and Advancement Project. The question here is, I must hurry up because I want to get some questions. The question here was, um, how, um, if you look at the million people that Labour claimed to have got off welfare into work, they did, they got 600,000 off, that's another issue. Um, if you do a labour market analysis, and they're all at the bottom of the labour market, bouncing in and out, in the low pay, no pay cycle, question is, how do we stop that? How, we act, how do we keep people in work, retention? How do we advance them in work? Okay? That was the challenge. We do what we said on the tin. We go and look at the systematic review of the evidence. The systematic review of the evidence showed these, these uh, 13 randomised controlled trials in the US, two from Canada. They all had positive effect sizes. So the answer was, we clearly want to use something of this policy. But the question then was, people like Rob asked, is, well, would it work in Britain? Okay. The actual interventions uh, were basically built about around a post-employment advisor service. Hitherto, as soon as you joined, you, you've always had, a, you've had an advisor in, in the advisor service in the uh, job centre service here for some time. But as soon as you got your job, you lost your, your advisor. 
This was saying, if you keep the advisor going for six months to a year, you get positive effects. Second, cash rewards, a conditional cash transfer for staying in working or completing sorry, and completing training. And thirdly, in-work training support. These have been shown to be effective. Question, would it work in Grimsby? Well, to be more precise, would it work in six areas of Britain that have been stubbornly resistant to anything they've thrown at them in the last 50 years? Okay? So we chose troublesome areas to test it. Uh, you can read the paper. It randomised 16,000 people from six regions of Britain to stubborn areas. Um, and the counterfactual was at the sorry, the, the randomization was at the individual level. So as you came into the job, uh, job, um, job plus service, you either were randomized into getting this program or getting the business as usual case, okay, on an individual basis. We did think about doing it in clusters of randomizing areas, but that's for another day. It actually took seven years to complete but there was real-time data from year one, and that's important. And I should add, what was special about this is that this was instigated by Gordon Brown as Chancellor. I remember going to meet them at Treasury in 2001, and they said to us, look, go away and test this, and when you've got to use a randomised controlled trial, nothing else will be acceptable. Go away and do an RTT, and we don't want to know about it until the next Parliament. This is, this is how policy should be made, and it's very, very rare. It's saying, go and work out the policy before we sink five billion pound a year in it, see if it'll work. Now, so this is extraordinary that we had this chance, but it's been a really wonderful, to me, learning experience. But it isn't an instrumental use of evidence. First of all, and I'm really extremely summarizing the outcomes, there were three groups, New Deal for Lone Parents, Working tax credit for people in work and New Deal for 25 plus. That's important because when we talk about will it work for the, low, the unemployed or the low, the low paid, they are very distinct groups. And the extreme summary is that in the first year we got a very substantial impact with the NDLP group, very small one with the WTC, and almost none. There were one, it was, it was uncertain. across the six regions, it was mixed, but it was pretty small. If we had done what happens in government so often, we run a policy for a, a trial for a year, we get year one results, we say, oh well, right, we're not we're not gonna run it for ND, we're not gonna run it for ND25, we're not gonna run it for WCCs, we might run it for the New Deal for Lone Parents. We would actually have lent ourselves to a type one error of accepting something that works that didn't. Because as opposed to a type two error, which is something that says that doesn't work when it does. By the time we got to year three, you can see that those substantial effects had disappeared almost. Still very small, but it never really worked with this group here. But the ND20, the New Deal for 25 plus, it really started having a substantial, and by the way, in subsequent years, sustained effect. Very important take-home message, when do you count an outcome as an outcome? Okay? And you're in politics, you're in government. You're halfway through, half through, year, through a term here, you can't wait for year three. So basically, you're taking a punt on it, okay? You really are. And so, we never did have the Employment Retention Act or the Employment Retention Policy. It never had that instrumental use, quite rightly so, because the evidence was mixed. But the good news is, and I've been talking to people at DWP, they have used the evidence from this major study simply to think about how we influence 
uh, the new, the, the, the coalition has used it, to how it can influence both the uh, universal credit and also the, um, the, the, the work program that, they've in, now, that they're introducing. And that's because the civil servants who worked on this with us for seven years are still in post. And they said, we're not just going to forget seven years' work, okay? And it's, so it's still having that percolation effect, probably watered down, certainly any elements of it, but it is having some impact. Okay, <coughs> you know, I'm going to stop there. I want to go on about how we, the barriers and how we go become the barriers. <coughs> I, I, I want to have some questions because I think there's enough for us to think about there. So if you want to hear about how to overcome barriers to this, I'll come back another day or put it on a video and send it to you, okay? <laughs> so is that okay if we do questions? It's better to take questions now, I think, okay?